where we talk to experts from around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. I'm Patricia Barrenechea. Dr. Benjamin Greng is a professor of social and political theory at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the Fulbright Visiting Professor at Johannes Kepler University of Linz, Austria. Today, uh, he's here with us to tell us about his work and his recently published book, The Human Rights State, Justice Within and Beyond Sovereign Nations. Hello, Benjamin. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. I'm going to ask you about your book, uh, but I'd like to start by asking why you first became interested in human rights. It seems to me that uh, the two most profound questions that humans face as a species are the following. First, what is true? What is the world like? And the other question is, how should we behave? In other words, how do we do justice? And uh, originally I was most interested in the first question, but now... I'm persuaded that uh, justice is more important than truth, not that justice is untrue, but it's a different kind of enterprise. And uh, within justice, it seems to me that the question of human rights is one of the most profound because uh, the uh, proper concern of human beings is human beings. And one of our greatest difficulties is to treat each other Uh, in ways uh, that are just, and I think human rights is one of the most um, promising, uh, although one of the most difficult avenues to try to achieve uh, justice. It's uh, one of the most promising and one of the most difficult because it involves not simply one community, which is difficult enough, but across communities. But we know uh, in many different ways that the welfare of one community is tied to the welfare of other communities and the mistreatment or abuse of one population impacts others and that put another way I think the responsibility of one community um, extends beyond that community to other communities and I find these questions coming together in human rights. Why did you write this book? I wrote this book In, as a continuation of a book I published in 2012 titled Human Rights as Social Construction, published by Cambridge University Press. I concluded that book with a chapter on what I called the human rights state. And when other people read my book, they a number of them were interested in particular in this chapter and uh, started asking me questions about it. And as I thought further uh, uh, about this question, it became clear to me that what I really wanted to say I hadn't grasped in this chapter. And uh, so I developed an entire book uh, and changed some of what I'd originally said in 2012 um, to uh, 
develop a, a, a comprehensive theory of political activism, which is what the human rights state is. It's a form of political activism in the sense of human rights, and that vision um, did not come to a complete expression in my 2012 book. Could you tell us briefly what the human rights state is about? The human rights state is, above all, an argument for political activism. It's an argument for political activism because I'm persuaded that human rights are not something that are given. Rather, human rights are something that are made and that human rights are best made by the people to whom they would apply. My vision of human rights is a multiplicity of local communities in which local people themselves would think about and deliberate and determine for themselves human rights. That is to say, the addressees of human rights should also be the authors of human rights. For this to happen, people need to organize and be active politically. And the idea of human rights is one model. It doesn't preclude other models. It's not necessarily in competition with other models, but it is a model of local people within a nation state who would organize themselves into groups, self-determined groups, groups that recognize human rights for themselves, define human rights for themselves, and practice human rights among themselves, and at the same time advocate vis-a-vis -vis their nation state that the nation state adopt human rights, human rights practice, and that the Hum that the nation-state uh, be modified in ways that make human rights possible, which means lowering the level of sovereignty so that human rights could become part of the domestic political and legal order, the indigenization of human rights, if you will. And then the step beyond that would be a community of human rights states, ultimately a community of nation-states that adhere to human rights, nation-states that recognize human rights, nation-states that have each made human rights a element of their internal organization and of their moral understanding. And the model foresees this community as expanding outward as best it can over time. I, I don't believe that the nature either of human beings or of human rights is such that we could ever expect some end point where our goals will have been met completely. Rather, I think that the project of human rights is, if you will, an eternal project, one that needs to be modified over time, will be modified and will always be a work in progress. The fact that there is no end point is hardly the defeat of the vision of uh, creating uh, a better world. In your book, you speak about uh, human rights as a social or political construction as opposed to other 
theological definitions of human rights. Uh, what do you think are the advantages of thinking of human rights this way? The promise and task of human rights is to penetrate borders, and that is no easy task, above all because the default form of political organization in the world today is the nation-state. The core element of the nation-state is sovereignty. Sovereignty means that solely the members of the community within the nation-state decide matters in that within that community as a matter of self-determination. This is a key problem for human rights because, of course, uh, human rights abuses are possible within the nation-state and they cannot be uh, adequately dealt with in part if uh, it's not possible for ideas and activists to uh, overcome that barrier of sovereignty. And therefore, let me put it this way, human rights is an idea and hopefully a practice that needs to travel. And not every idea and practice travels well for various reasons. I distinguish between what I call otherworldly approaches and a thisworldly approach. An otherworldly approach includes religion, and um, uh, there are forms, there are arguments about human rights that would base them on religious conceptions or on metaphysical conceptions. The difficulty with this approach is that if you take any one religion, you cannot generalize it to all people without violating core beliefs and self-understandings of many people. Every religion is particularistic in that sense, even if it takes itself to be universally valid. There are, after all, many, many kinds of religions, and indeed any given religion is not experienced monolithically, but rather you have different groups within that religion that view matters differently. So as a carrier of human rights, religion is hampered by the fact that uh, it cannot be generalized uh, without compromising uh, the profound uh, self-understandings of, of many people. My alternative is what I call a this-worldly approach, social construction. Social construction is a method, a viewpoint that is uh, well-known within uh, sociology and other social sciences. And the basic idea is that uh, norms, rules, laws, moral perspectives, which we would use as a community to guide our behavior, that these norms are not coming to us from outside, for example, from God or uh, from a metaphysical landscape, or, if you will, from the United Nations or so forth, but rather human. Uh, these norms are generated uh, by communities. They are inventions. They are human artifacts. Now, the advantage of an otherworldly approach is, uh, is, is the claim that because the norm, in this case human rights, is coming from outside humans, they may apply to all humans. 
the difficulty, though, is that we can't agree on the source or the meaning and, 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 and uh, understand why someone believes that human rights are coming from this source rather than another uh, source. Uh, whereas a this-worldly approach uh, claims that people themselves make those norms and the validity is at first only local. It's valid for those people who hold this norm to be valid for themselves but we can work from this beginning towards ever larger validity. Our aspiration in human rights is, after all, global validity. And in my work, I advocate the method of persuasion rather than coercion. That is to say, different peoples, different communities may have various conceptions of human rights, and I believe that through discussion and exchange... It's possible uh, to persuade, uh, to allow people to freely persuade themselves of the uh, validity, uh, of the usefulness, and of the coherence of human rights, whereby, of course, there will still be differences, but there will always be differences uh, in human communities and among human communities when the question is, how should we behave? So our goal cannot be complete and total consensus throughout the world. But our goal can be increasing agreement and increasing clarity on areas where we disagree and uh, a thorough and thoughtful discussion about what is tolerable and what is not. Also, in the title of your book, we can read uh, Justice Within and Beyond Sovereign Nations. Does uh, your book have something to say about the extraterritorial obligations of states? It does, and um, that is because my book uh, does not reject the nation-state, even though I say that the nation-state is uh, perhaps the single major obstacle to the realization of the vision of human rights. The goal, it seems to me, should be to modify the, human, uh, the, modify the nation-state and modification, above all, with regard to lowering the level of sovereignty, not destroying nation-state sovereignty, but decreasing nation-state sovereignty to the extent necessary to allow human rights to cross borders. And I believe that the best way to achieve this goal is ultimately for human rights to become part of the national self-understanding. That is to say that human rights would become part of the national constitution so that the practice of human rights could be at once both national and cross-national. And the idea then of a human rights state is political activism. The human rights state is a metaphor. It refers to a group of citizens within a nation state who among themselves would grant themselves human rights and behave accordingly and then advocate vis-a-vis -vis their own nation-state, that that nation-state adopt the human rights that they are practicing. This is, of course, a very hopeful and optimistic view, but then that's exactly what human rights are, a hopeful and optimistic view of what's possible in a world that knows so much pain and suffering and abuse. There's a chapter in your book that jumped out to me when I took a look at it. It's called... Um a human right, not to democracy, uh, 
but to the rule of law. What do you mean by that? Within the discussion of human rights, the place of democracy has attracted a great deal of interest. There are authors who are persuaded that human rights requires democracy, or indeed that democracy itself is a human right. I beg to differ. Not that I reject democracy. On the contrary, like many people, I'm persuaded that with all its difficulties, it still is clearly the best form of social organization. But I speak as a North American of European heritage who lives and works in Europe and in America, and I know that uh, the viewpoint here is not a universal viewpoint and that there are many parts of the world in which democracy certainly is not practiced but is not even perhaps a goal. Uh, democracy is, after all, an acquired taste. And it seems to me that the project of human rights, by which I mean the project of advancing human rights consciousness and human rights practice, is actually hindered if it's tied to a demand for democracy. It seems to me that many human rights are possible without democracy and that uh, in the majority of the world's countries, the human rights project is more likely to advance if the uh, demand does not include uh, uh, democracy, uh, although, of course, the future, hopefully, maybe there will be a greater room. But in the short term, certainly, um, a, a more work can be done by establishing uh, the rule of law, it seems to me, than, than democracy. And the rule of law is possible without democracy, but I think human rights are not possible without the rule of law. The rule of law means, among other things, that the state, the nation state, and the highest authorities are themselves bound by the rules, in this case, human rights rules. And unless that's the case, you don't have rule of law. And if you don't have rule of law, you don't have the prospect of enduring locally embedded human rights. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. We just spoke to Benjamin Gregg, Professor of Social and Political Theory at the University of Texas at Austin. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. I'm Patricia Barrenetzea. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back soon with more interviews with human rights experts from around the world. 